the National Archives podcast series. Writer of the Month, Wordsworth's and Coleridge's Year Together in Somerset, 1797-1798. Presented by Adam Nicholson. This talk was recorded on the 15th of April, 2015, at the National Archives, Kew. Thank you very much. And so it's going to be a a, a sort of terrifying hurl through two enormous subjects. We ha- so I have 20-odd minutes on Wordsworth and Coleridge in the Quantocks. I'm sure you all know, the world knows, that uh, between uh, June uh, 1797 and July 1798, Wordsworth and Coleridge and Dorothy Wordsworth and many of their friends, Charles Lamb and many others, spent a year in West Somerset in these wonderful hills called the Quantocks. And from that year, always known afterwards to Wordsworth and Coleridge as the Annus Mirabilis, an astonishing number of the greatest English poems emerged. So Coleridge wrote The Ancient Mariner, Kubla Khan, Christabel, Frost at Midnight. You know, so just an incredible uh, emergence. Wordsworth wrote most of the, uh, or all the lyrical ballads, the, the poems that came out in, at the end of 1798 in the volume, joint volume with him and Coleridge, and also began to write, in many ways I think more interestingly, began to write some of the poetry which later in that year, at the end of uh, 1798, started to form the basis of the prelude his great autobiographical poem on the growth of a poet's mind. And so there is something incredibly productive about this year, this coming together of these two very different poets in this particular place. And this is the first time, not only I've ever spoken about Homer and the Quantocks together, but the first time I've ever spoken about a book that I haven't yet written, because I'm in the middle of their year. I, I've been there since January. I rented, in fact, I managed to rent the house that Coleridge himself wanted to rent, but failed for various reasons. It's a tiny little cottage about the size of this stage. And I've been living there trying to do every day what they did, because uh, Dorothy Wordsworth kept the journal. And so you know exactly where they walked. A huge amount of scholarship has been done on it, obviously. And so you know what they were reading, their letters, what they were thinking. And I have been trying to mimic their world so far. So I'm just going to talk about that. So this is the uh, little market town of Netherstowe, photograph taken in uh, 1910. And the reason that uh, Coleridge came to live there in 1796 was wonderful a uh, young man called Thomas Poole, who was a, a tanner, but uh, had self-educated and was also a Democrat. He's wearing the uh, dark blue and white sort of uniform, all kind of look that all Democrats wore at the time, Coleridge included. And Tom Poole uh, lived in this rather handsome, fine house uh, in Netherstowe. And around the corner from Tom Poole's house is this street, Lime Street in Netherstowe. And at the top of it here uh, is what is now called Coleridge Cottage and belonging to the National Trust and made to look, I think, ridiculous by the National Trust, painted in every conceivable pharaoh and ball colour you could (laughs) ever think of, and essentially denatured by doing that. This is a 
contemporary picture of, of what Coleridge's house uh, looked like then. You can see it is the same building. It's, it's just this part. That, that's a later addition. It's just this part with that, that big blank between the two upper story windows. An absolute hovel with a leaking thatch roof and uh, a terrible, nasty conditions for poor Sarah Coleridge, the despised and maltreated Mrs. Coleridge, who Wordsworth really, uh, who Coleridge really treated abominably. Now, this wonderful thing someone gave me the other day, which I don't think this has ever been published, was one of their neighbours, a man called John Crookshank, a farmer. And John Crookshank uh, knew of a house for rent. Uh, belonging to a family where the heir was too young to occupy it at the time. And so John Crookshank arranged when Coleridge brought Wordsworth there in June 1797 to rent this lovely Queen Anne house, Alfoxton house, just at the foot of the, of the nose of the Quantock Hills, <clears throat> looking up into this kind of parkland with ferns and trees and, and out the other way. And this uh, wonderful park, this, these oak trees, Dorothy describes in her journal uh, for early 1798 as new planted, the new planted oaks. And uh, I was rather excited to identify this plantation. I don't think anyone has identified this as Dorothy's new planted oaks, because obviously they are 200 and whatever it is, 17 years old. Uh, but the, the uh, park itself, rather marvellously, has been completely trashed over the years. And nature is reclaiming this gentlemanly environment. An incredible, sort of wild, broken, red deer-occupied uh, place now. Not at all like it would have been in the late 18th century. But the key thing, I'm just, I hope you're not... We will come on to archives in a bit, but I'm just going to talk about the... Uh, uh, Quantocks, rather. The, the wonderful thing about them are these big, this is big range of hills, but in them are these deep wooded valleys. These are all uh, oak woods here, the most incredible oak woods I've ever seen. The oak woods are there because they were used for their bark to tan the skins of the cattle which were grazing on the Somerset levels. There's a, there's a very, so which is where Tom Poole's fortune came from. There are they're a crop, but an incredibly beautiful place. Absolutely filled wherever you go with streams. It is just the streamiest place I know. And the, um, one of the kind of motivations for my year in, uh, in the Quantocks is to take their attachment to nature seriously. It is very easy, I think, to, to think of Wordsworth and Coleridge as rather kind of sweet nature lovers in a coy, coy, cosy way. There is something infinitely more serious than that in their attachment to nature. And this uh, wonderful sort of fluidity of streams. Early in their year together, Coleridge was thinking of writing a great long poem in a way Coleridge's own version of the prelude called The Brook, which was going to trace... Uh, uh, the kind of the life of man from the origins in a little stream on the top of the hills all the way down to the sea. And that is where that stream emerges on this wonderful uh, beach at Kilve where the, the two of them like to go and sit and talk. And the beach at Kilve 
will emerge later in the story. But of course, the key thing that they do, they do all the time, is to go walking, walking through these extraordinary uh, twisted oak woods and up on the, through these old lanes, up onto the tops of the contour. So you have this wonderful poetic geography, in effect, of kind of deep buried valleys, streamy valleys, wood uh, emergence, and then high uh, kind of view over to the west into Devon, to the, to the valleys to Exmoor in the distance there. And this got a sense of kind of largeness. So you have both deep intimacy and incredible extent. So I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of saying in my book, it's very odd talking about a book I haven't written yet, but one of the things I think of saying is that maybe you can see in this geography a kind of foundation of the romantic sensibility, that you have both kind of close, domestic, beautiful intimacy below and a sense of the, the otherness, the kind of grandeur of, of, the, of the universe even, uh, high above. When um, Coleridge started to write about this year together and the making of the lyrical ballads much later in uh, his poetic autobiography, the Biographia Literaria, he said the thing that really struck them, that, sort of, that struck him and, and Wordsworth, was that in sunset and moonlight, the falling of sunset and moonlight on the familiar landscape, was in a way a route towards what you might do with poetry. It's an extraordinary sentence to say that actually landscape that you know in unfamiliar conditions can somehow lead you to a state of mind which the kind of clear, you know, over-usual midday light which you could sort of characterise 18th century poetry as having, that you look with sort of total clarity at things, somehow does not give you access to the kind of meanings that they were interested in. It's actually the kind of, you know, this marginal half-light that you get in evenings, and as the dark comes on, and this was an amazing moon rising over the M5 there, that is, uh, from the top of the hills the other day. And, of course, they... They go for walks in moonlight and not a lot. That's Venus above the moon there. And Coleridge writes very beautifully about the old moon held within the arms of the new. And then I, he, Coleridge is very interested in photography, amazingly. His great friend, Tom Wedgwood, his, and patron who gave him the money he was living on, has a claim to being the first photographer. They used to soak chamois leathers in silver nitrate solutions and expose uh, them to the light and you'd get these beautiful transient images because they had no means of fixing them. You'd be able to just hold the chamois leather in a shadowy part of the house and view it by candlelight decades before, you know, Fox Talbot and all the rest of it. And so I tried to take some moonlight photos trying to recapture romantic sensibility. In a way, the kind of key, my key project for the year is to revive the sense of newness and unexpectedness in this thing, you know, that we are so over-familiar with the, all the romantic agenda that in a way we sort of don't see it or feel it anymore. 
And that is a rather hopeless task I've set myself. <laughs> anyway, archives. The walking around at night, looking at the moon, loving streams. Both of them had been highly radical figures earlier in the 1790s. Coleridge had been lecturing <coughs> in Bristol. Uh, we were at war with France. Uh, they'd had great hope in the French Revolution. Those hopes had faded with the terror and uh, to a sense of great uh, disorientation and disappointment in both of them. But they had uh, a reputation for radicalism, if you like. And so their, their life there, this strange life, walking around at night and in the sunset and talking all the time, raised suspicions among the local people. And a man called Dr. Lysons, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Lysons or Lysons, who lived in Bath, heard from one of his servants that she had heard from a servant who had been working at Alfoxton in the Wordsworth house that some pretty rum things were going on. And he wrote to the Duke of Portland, who was one of the secretaries of state and who was running the secret service. And this is a copy of the letter he wrote to my Lord Duke. On the 8th inst, this is his second letter. The first has uh, gone, disappeared. This is 11th of August, 1797, from his house in Bath. I took the liberty to acquaint your grace with a very suspicious business concerning an emigrant family who have continued, who have contrived to get possession of a mansion house at Alfoxton, late belonging to the Reverend Mr. St. Albin, under Quantox Hills. I am, since, I am since informed that the master of the house has no wife with him, but only a woman who passes for his sister. The man has camp stools, which he and his visitors carry with them when they go about the country upon their nocturnal or diurnal expeditions. <laughs> and have also a portfolio in which they write their observations, which they have been heard to say were almost finished. They have been heard to say they should be rewarded for them and were very attentive, attentive to the river near them, probably the river coming within a mile or two of Alfoxton from Bridgewater. These people may possibly be under agents to some principal at Bristol. Having got these additional anecdotes which were dropped by the person mentioned in my last, I think it necessary to acquaint your grace with them, have the honour, etc., etc., de-licensed to the Duke of Portland. It is the most marvellous coming together of uh, sort of romantic sort of dream sensibility and the sense of terror that uh, radicalism was, was sending through the English establishment. And so the Duke of Portland immediately uh, sent off his uh, top spy, a man called John Walsh, to go and try and find out what was going, what was going on. And he, and so Walsh caught up with Mogg, a man called Charles Mogg, who had been uh, working at Alfoxton. Amazingly, he found him in Hungerford. And this is written from John Walsh back to the Home Office, uh, to the Secretary of State's office uh, from the Bear Inn in Hungerford. 
Charles Mogg uh, says he was at Alphaxton last Saturday. It was a week there. He met Thomas Jones, who lives at the farmhouse at Alphaxton, who informed Mogg that some French people had got possession of the mansion house and that they were washing and mending their clothes all Sunday. <laughs> Christopher Tricky and his wife, who live at the dog pound at Alphaxton, told Mogg that the French people had taken the plan of their house that they had also taken the plan of all the places round that part of the country, that a brook runs in front of Tricky's house, and the French people inquired of Tricky whether the brook was navigable to the sea, and upon being informed by Tricky that it was not, they were afterward seen examining the book, the brook quite down to the sea. Clearly, they were planning some kind of French invasion. <laughs> and, well... Coleridge, when he wrote about this, made a great joke of it all, you know, and in Biography Literary, it says, he says, uh, clearly um, the spy uh, didn't quite know what he was about because uh, he used to listen to us talking on the sea, uh, seaside at Kilve and uh, came back with a report that Spy Nosy was somehow involved in the, in the affair. Spy Nosy, because of course Spinoza was the great philosopher of wholeness that Coleridge was in love with at the time. So this then, this is Walsh going on. The French people kept no servant, but they were visited by a number of persons and were frequently out upon the heights most part of the night. But Walsh had his doubts. As Mr. Mogg I can't remember where this is in the thing because I couldn't read it. As Mr. Mogg is by no means the most intelligent man in the world, I thought it my duty to send you the whole of this story as he related it. So Walsh on the ground thinks this is absolutely ridiculous. But um, John King, who was the undersecretary to the Duke of Portland in London, didn't agree. And so he said that he wrote to from Whitehall on August 11th, incredibly fast posts is one quite interesting thing. You know, it's just absolutely zipping up and down the M4, whatever it is. I've considered the contents of your letter to me from the Bear Inn Hungerford of yesterday's date. You will immediately proceed to Alfoxton or its neighbourhood yourself, taking care on your arrival not to conduct yourself as to give, not to give a cause of suspicion, I think, to the inhabitants of the mansion house there. You will narrowly watch the proceedings, observe how they coincide with Mogg's account, and that contained in the letter from Mr. Lyson. So, so this is King telling, you, telling Walsh to get down there and get sorted uh, to the Duke of Portland. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, if you are in, the, in want of further information, you will call on Sir P. Hales, Sir Philip Hales, Bart, of Brymore near Bridgewater. So needless to say, Walsh did not bother with, <laughs> with Hales, and he got himself down to uh, Netherstowey and found uh, a room to stay at the Globe Inn, where he now writes back to John King in, uh, in Whitehall. And he says he went into the, into the inn and he was chatting to people, 
And it didn't take long before the key name was mentioned, John Thelwall. John Thelwall was a great radical uh, activist and um, demagogue who used to address hundreds of people in London on the need for reform and revolutionary ideas and was tried for high treason, acquitted, as many of the others were. But there is a sort of serious un undernote. Many people were actually transported to Australia for doing exactly the kind of things that Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Thelwell all did. And so, only it's funny, but it's not funny, you know. So anyway, in, in the Globe Inn in, uh, in uh, Nether Stowey, uh, Thelwell's name was mentioned, and uh, the man in the, in the inn says to uh, Walsh, no, 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 they're not French but they are people that will do as much harm as all the French can do. And Walsh says to King, I think this will turn out no French affair, but a mischievous gang of disaffected Englishmen. And in many ways, they're absolutely right, that in the core, you know, this is the interesting thing about the core of romanticism, that it isn't a kind of sweet uh, nature love. It's actually about transforming the way the world works and the way in which people, every ordinary people uh, are viewed. I've just procured the name of the person who took the house. His name is Wordsworth. The name, this is a really intriguing thing, uh, his name is Wordsworth. A name, I think, known to Mr. Ford, which has caused endless ructions in the people who worried about these things. His name is Wordsworth, a name I think known to Mr. Ford. Now, Mr. Ford is Richard Ford, who's the Bow Street magistrate, very much in with the English establishment. And so why is the name of Wordsworth known to Mr. Ford? There's no real answer to that. No one has found one yet. It may be you know, that Wordsworth had had a love affair and conceived a child with a woman in France, uh, Annette Vallon, earlier in the 1790s and had deserted her, essentially. But she wrote to him endlessly and many of her letters didn't arrive. And so it may be that her letters uh, were certainly opened as they were, you know, supervising the posts. So maybe that's how they knew of him. Or he did have a brother, William Wordsworth had a brother, Richard, who was a lawyer in London, so maybe the magistrate knew Richard Wordsworth and this was just a confusion. Or it was maintained, but I think it's been disproved now, that, uh, that um, William Wordsworth may himself have been in with the spy world and maybe was spying for the Home Office on his friends. I think that that was maintained for a while in, in the 1990s, but it's not reasonable now. So, but so it's it's a bit of a it's an unexpected uh, dimension to this. So I think then this is the uh, last of the letters. So he's still this is from Walsh again, beautifully unreadable. It has to be said, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's so he's still there, 16th of August. And he's understood what's going on. The inhabitants of Alfredston House are a set of violent Democrats. The house was taken for a person of the name of Wordsworth. He has with him this time a Mr. Coldridge and his wife, both of whom he supported since Christmas last. That's not true. 
This Coldridge came last from Bristol and is reckoned a man of superior ability. He's frequently publishing and I'm told is soon to produce a new work. And then Walsh finally goes on. Thomas Jones, the servant, had been at dinner there where John Thelwall had talked so loud and in such a passion that Jones was frightened and refused to continue to working there. Wordsworth, though, has a servant who is very chatty and she told him, that is someone else in Netherstow, she told him that her master was a philosopher. So, uh, and that is, the, that's it. That's all we have, this kind of tiny fragment of romantic life. Absolutely marvellous in a way. I think for sort of revealing a kind of living reality to these people who are otherwise seen as just rather dead icons. I think it completely turns one idea of who they were and how they were upside down. Uh, and the key thing, which I haven't mentioned, but the key thing is how incredibly young all these people were. That Wordsworth was 27 and Coleridge was 24 when this was going on. You know, these are young, passionate, uncertain, hugely ambitious geniuses, not the sort of, you know, ghastly monuments who were all bored stiff by. Well, these are government documents. Well, they, this, is the, this is the state uh, spy system. Yes, and so, and very well funded that uh, King, you know, the undersecretary in Whitehall, sends uh, off to his, his spy Walsh, you know, when he's coming to this, a £20 banknote. You know, it's a huge amount of money. The, the rent for Alfoxton for the whole year was £23. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, pa it's power uh, in action, really. And, and a very fierce and repressive regime. The files as a whole are interesting. I haven't got time to tell you about it, but you know, the environment that these papers exist in are fascinating. You know, that they're uh, all around the country, people are sending in reports like this, people who are suspicious. I think I should tell you about what a man said in the pub last night. He said, I want to shoot the king. I think you should look into this. There's soldiers being sent, people being, uh, shorthand notes being taken at secret meetings of radical democratic society, a complete spy, sort of securitate, Stasi system. End of Coleri end of Quantocks there. All right, so Homer. I've I've loved Homer uh, for many years. Not when I was a boy. I hated Homer when I was a boy. I tried to read it in Greek. Couldn't do the Greek at all. And then when I when I was middle aged, about forty five, I came back to Homer and suddenly realised this was a wonderful thing. Uh, but of course, there is no, there's nothing written or virtually nothing written. I was, just, I was trying to think about Homer and archives. So that the archives for Homer are not on the whole words. They are things. And so this, this is a picture of a pot, which is from about 725 BC, a Greek pot, but found in Italy. And that is, that is just part of it. But this is a drawing made of the entire body of the pot. And it is a, a shipwreck. And there is the ship upside down. And here is the crew. And here is a man with his head being eaten by a giant fish. 
and scattered all over everywhere are these little swastikas, which in the whole world, the whole Indo-European world, stretching from India all the way to Germany, famously, and even to this country, are signs of uh, good luck, a kind of blessing, blessing, blessing swastikas. And this incredible pot uh, is alongside another one on the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples. And this one is perhaps the most astonishing archive in the whole Homeric story. And if I just dwell on this, it's not a particularly pretty thing. It was dug up by a Italo-German archaeologist, Giorgio Buchner, in the 1950s. And the pot was made also in about 750 BC in Rhodes on the eastern side of the Aegean. And it is dug up in a grave on Ischia in the Bay of Naples, the other end of the ancient Greek world. And it's a, it's a drink, it's a wine cup. It's only about like this big. And uh, for shared drinking. But amazingly, carved on it are these words. I don't know if you can see there. Just very, very roughly cut into, cut into the glaze with a, a burin, however you say that word. Uh, and that, those three lines of Greek there are the earliest Greek writing that survive. They're the earliest reference to Homer. And they are the first joke about Homer. Because what they say is, I am the cup of Nestor, good for drinking. Whoever drinks from this cup, desire for beautifully crowned Aphrodite will seize him instantly. So it doesn't sound that funny, I suppose, when you say it. But <laughs> the cup of Nestor in the Iliad is an enormous thing, which Nestor, the old and rather pompous uh, king of Pylos, uh, uh, has taken with him to the Trojan War, and only Nestor can drink it, and it's an immensely sombre and solemn thing. And so, this for to say that this little wine cup is the cup of Nestor, saying, "Don't be ridiculous. Of course, I'm not the cup of Nestor." But the thing that will happen if you drink this is you won't be turned into a great Greek hero. Immediately, desire for beautifully crowned Aphrodite will seize you. Well, desire for beautifully crowned Aphrodite means lust. Aphrodite is the goddess of love and sex. And so this cup is basically saying, um, drink me and aphrodisiac effects will just sweep through you. And uh, it's a kind of, it's an astonishing thing because most people think that uh, Homer dates from about this moment, from about 700 BC. That is the sort of received idea, that it was a moment when all sorts of things were happening in the Greek world, that uh, writing coming from Phoenicia, uh, colonies, ships, Olympic Games, places like Delphi, all kinds of um, new city-states, all sorts of revolutionary changes, changes were happening in Greece in about 700 BC. 
and Homer is seen as the sort of crowning glory of that Renaissance moment. But what is really astonishing is that here, right at the beginning of that uh, Homeric Greek moment, uh, you actually find people making jokes about Homer. And to me, that implies this is not a kind of newly made thing. This is, this is a joke on a deep, deep inheritance. Now, there's one other thing that I just wanted to show you. This is, that is my hand. Uh, the other day, also in Ischia, and I, somebody said to me, have you seen Odysseus's star chart? And I said, no. So I, I rootled around and, and found a priest, and, and a priest said, yes, yes, we've been digging under the church, and we found this incredible piece of pottery. So I said, well, what is incredible about it? And he said, well, here we are off the coast of Italy. This is also from about from the 8th century B.C., but it was made on the, uh, in the Aegean. It was probably made in Euboea. It's a kind of pottery that comes from there. But carved onto it or scratched onto it is this. And it is a star. It's a, it's a constellation. And the constellation with its B there, its beta, is the constellation of Boötes. Boötes, the ploughman. And Boötes is the constellation by which Odysseus sails in the Odyssey. And what is very wonderful about it, this priest explained it to me, is that this, in fact, is the bottom of the pot here. So if you, held, if you had the full pot like that, that would be a shard right on the bottom. And so if you held the whole pot up, you would have the whole map of the heavens above you. And in the Odyssey... Odysseus says, Boötes is the last to set. In other words, it's the constellation that is going down finally beneath the horizon. And that is exactly the position that Boötes has in the, in the fragment there. And so this is another, like a kind of pottery, a sort of bit of a pottery archive to kind of take you back to that sailing, uh, stargazing, Odyssean, Homeric, heroic world. And I, it was just an incredibly exciting thing. You know, I'm sure you know, you wouldn't be in this building if you didn't know how one gets so nerded up about these things. <laughs> but, uh, you think, this I've just discovered, the most sacred relic I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, so now, of course, there are earlier archives. This is a Bronze Age a tablet with linear B writing from the palace of Pylos in the Peloponnese, from maybe from uh, the great uh, palatial moment of, of uh, Mycenaean culture in about 1350 BC, so pushing back. But these, these uh, tablets are no way ever record anything to do with Homer. They're always administrative. They're about tax raising, how to run... Uh, palace systems and so on. You know, there's no heroic thing there. So there's no suggestion that Homer would ever have been written down like that. So instead, the book I wrote about Homer is about some an, a phase even earlier than that, going back into a deeply pre-literate world. And the pre-literate world, which this map is all about, is about the spread of the Indo-European speaking peoples. That the, the idea is that 
say in about up till 4000 BC in this area, there would be people who spoke this notional language called Proto-Indo-European, the great mother language of all the languages from Ireland right over to uh, Western China, Tokhari and B. And from that point, these languages dispersed in this astonishing way. And so the language, what is spoken in Europe, in Ireland, in Scandinavia, and all the stories that have come through, even to Iceland, uh, all draw on a kind of route that began there uh, 5,000 or 6,000 odd years ago. And so the, the, the story that I pursue in my book is that the, the world of the Eastern Aegean or the Eastern Mediterranean is deeply urbanized at this time. The great cities of uh, Mesopotamia, of the Eastern littoral of the Mediterranean and the Hittite cities in Anatolia are all conducting a kind of urban, organized life. And these people are essentially nomadic herders in love with um, uh, cattle and uh, horses and uh, not in any way kind of uh, fixed into the kind of urban authoritarian structures that you find in these great urban civilizations of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and so on. And what happens, to my mind, in the Iliad is that this world, this nomadic world here, meets this world, the urban world. And the point at which they meet is here. And right there is where Troy is. And the... the the grand cultural confrontation in the Iliad is between a gang of rather barbarian nomadic fighters who don't really have any coherence in themselves, who are at each other's throats in many ways, meeting a city which is deeply organized, deeply uh, respectful of order, of and of human relationships, beautifully made Troy is in the Iliad. And so the Greeks in the Iliad are the people who have come from here. And the Trojans, in effect, are the people who have come from here. And one of the reasons that Homer remains deeply alluring to us is that that meeting of nomadic gang with organized city is essentially important for our idea of who we are. And in some ways, our civilization draws on that, uh, on the melding of those qualities. You could even see our lovely general election as a pale reflection of this. What do we want? You know, wild, individualistic, Achilles-like entrepreneurs, or beautiful, organized, socially-minded. So... Uh, this is an incredibly alluring idea that I had. <laughs> and I pursued this, you know, the world of bronze, that, that the Greeks are always described in the Iliad as the people who sever 
they cut. They cut bodies. They cut people from the people they love. You know, they cut Achilles. Is slices off people's heads and arms. It is a essentially a cutting world, as against the Trojan world, which is one of weaving. The Trojans weave beautiful cloths all the time. They tie things together. They make they make endless. They they give beautiful cloths to their goddesses and so on. Uh, and so, and that in a way is another is Homeric reflection of the meeting of these two kinds of civilizations. And there is the the richness of, uh, or or at least the kind of vigor of that Greek uh, nomadic drive, appears in the great Mycenaean uh, objects that Schliemann dug up at Mycenae in the nineteenth century. And this is one of the stele, these kind of tombstones, with this man in a chariot. This is from about sixteen hundred BC. This man on a chariot driving at this poor uh, victim there. And just the kind of sheer energy of this world is in in that, I think. But it is also, I went on a sort of tour of Bronze Age Europe and found these these wonderful things in Estremadura. I don't know if you've ever been there in Badajoz. There is a a museum there filled with these astonishing Bronze Age, rather late Bronze Age, I think they're about 1200 BC, steely there. And what you have there is a depiction of the Homeric world in sort of dry, stony, central upland Spain. So here you have a giant spear. I think I've got some more pictures of this. Here you have a man with his great sword, another there. And then here, this is a shield. And you will know from the Iliad that Homer describes Achilles' shield as this beautiful concentric thing, one ring of things after another. And here you have a chariot seen in plan, chariot with its two wheels there and uh, its traces for the horses there. Uh, So you have a chariot here, and here are the two horses seen in profile, facing each other, but with the chariot seen in plan. The man with his sword, his shield, something which may be a bow and arrow. No one quite knows what that is. And then this amazing thing here, which appears on quite a few of the stones and is thought to be a lyre, a musical instrument, that actually the lyre the thing you sing with, uh, in the thing, thing you make the Homeric epic with, is as important a part of uh, the heroic world as any of those other instruments of violence. And so, you know, I think it's a very beautiful idea that uh, somehow this world of song, which in almost the entire uh, rest of Europe is silent. You know, we don't know what was sung in uh, in Bronze Age England, but this is from Wiltshire, and it is in fact part of a probably a thing a wheel hub, but it's been stabbed all these times here by a by a spear, and you will remember from the end of the Iliad that after 
Achilles kills Hector, all Achilles' friends come up and stab the body that Achilles has already killed. And I think that this is a kind of world of, kind of ritual and repeated killing. And here, I hope it's restful, is an absolutely wonderful thing up on Salisbury Plain in the military training ground on, on Salisbury Plain. These are the posts to stop the tanks driving over this. But what it is, is a very strange round barrow, which has been dug and excavated by archaeologists, but has nothing in it. It is just a kind of pure, beautiful sort of earth form. And in the Iliad, Homer talks about something very, very like this, a kind of beautiful, clear eye cut into the surface of the earth, almost gazing up at the rest of the universe. And I think, I mean, this could be a lifelong exercise for me to try and say that Homer is the only surviving voice of a world that in fact, you know, or a kind of thought world that fills everywhere we know. But thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.